Well, I just want to share with you a, a really, um, for me, astonishing experience last night. Um, I, I went out for a great uh, concert last night, uh, which confirmed for me that Beethoven is better than most modern composers. Um, <laughs> and, um, and on my way back, uh, late night, I had the radio on uh, at, uh, what is it called? Public uh, radio, whatever that is. Um, and um, it was gone midnight. Uh, and, and it appears that the public radio stops trying to broadcast anything after midnight and instead simply runs BBC World Service. Um, and to my astonishment, as I drove into uh, where I'm staying, um, I was on the radio. <laughs> How bizarre is that? This <laughs> is so strange. Um, something I'd recorded before I'd left. There's a programme on, on BBC Radio called From Our Own Correspondent, which has um, dispatches from various parts of the world. And I'm a kind of... I'm not actually a correspondent for the BBC, but nevertheless, they let me do bits and pieces from time to time. Little five-minute slots about where you've been and some aspect of it. Um, and uh, I did one about Kenya, and, um, and there it was on the radio. I didn't, I didn't even know. So very odd. Um, it's so strange to hear yourself talking to yourself in a place you didn't expect, um, you know, right, about a place you didn't expect. Anyway, um, what's this topic? Uh, what calendars tell us about cultures? So first of all, let me tell you, what do I know about calendars? And then I'll tell you, um, or, or ra rather, why am I the person to talk about calendars? In the UK, there's a... a, um, a a, a, a subject in schools, in, in elementary and high schools, called religious education. And, and I know this sounds very strange to the American mind, but until 1988, it was one of the only two compulsory subjects in the curriculum, right? The other compulsory subject was physical education. Other than physical education and religious education, there was no definition of what needed to be taught in a British school. The only thing you had to do was provide, bless us, an adequate education. In America, it'd have to be a superb, awesome, excellent, outstanding, right? In Britain, adequate. That's all we need, okay? We're not asking for more than that, an adequate education. Now, the law has changed since, and we've got a national curriculum now, but religious education uh, is, is protected and enshrined in British law, and every school in the country must teach religious education, uh, sorry, every, every state-funded school in the country, which is the vast majority of them, must teach religious education. But, of course, children don't have to learn it. Uh, and not by the usual strategy of simply not listening, but parents have the right to withdraw their child from the class. Okay? But religious education is a subject, of course, in its early days, in the 1940s, 1950s, it was essentially Christianity. And the law said that uh, the religious education must not be specific of any particular denomination. We all understand what that means. You're not allowed to teach Catholicism or Anglicanism or Methodism or something. It's just Christianity. Now, this is a pretty stupid understanding of how Christianity works. But nevertheless, that was the law. In the 1970s, um, I and a group of... I, 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 I'm a kind of multiple founder, a serial founder. It's a kind of a <laughs> compulsive thing, you know. Um, and in the 1970s, together with a group of other people who were interested in this field, I started um, a, 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 um, a group 
called the SHAP Working Party on World Religions and Education. We go for snappy titles in Britain. SHAP is a village in the northeast, uh, northwest of England, and that's where we met for the first time, so that's why it's called SHAP. It's called the Working Party because it was a working party, and it was about world religions and education. So the idea was that we would produce excellent materials, excellent training, excellent curriculum ideas, so that religious education in schools around Britain would start not just to teach Christianity, but to teach about other religions too. And we decided to exploit this loophole of shouldn't be specific of any particular denomination to argue that that meant if it shouldn't be specific of any particular denomination, it shouldn't just be Christianity. Okay, that's clearly not what the law meant, but that's the way we decided to push it. And in fact, we drove it and pushed it and pushed it and drove it until in 1988, Margaret Thatcher, backlash Margaret Thatcher, decided that the Shap Working Party was working to undermine the essentials of uh, British life and uh, strip out the Christian necessities, not that anybody much was very interested by then. Um, and uh, so, in fact, the 1988 Act, which introduced the national curriculum under Margaret Thatcher, made certain restrictions on religious education and insisted that at least half of, no, sorry, that um, uh, religious education in the majority should be Christian whilst taking account of the other principal religions of Britain, all right? So in fact, what happened was for the first time, the law required the teaching of other religions, right? So it was a, a step forward, although Margaret Thatcher didn't recognise that. And bless her, bless her, I'm one of the proudest things I, 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 in my life, uh, she named the Shap Working Party as one of the villains of the piece. I think if I'm opposing Margaret Thatcher, <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. Um, so, uh, so this religious education thing was a big deal. Um, in 19, um, I don't know, 79, 1980, we decided to produce a calendar of religious festivals because if schools were teaching about different religions, it was cute to be able to say, oh, children, around this time, Hindus are doing this or Sikhs are doing that or Baha'is are doing something else, right? And we were going to produce a calendar of religious festivals and because I was the only person sitting around the table, most of my colleagues were uh, white Christian nondescripts, um, and I was the only uh, colourful one. Um, uh, there was a Muslim as well, um, but but most mostly they were kind of um, you know neo para more or less Christians. Um, I was the only one who understood that calendars worked differently. You know that there were different calendars. I, I knew at least two, so I became the editor and compiler of the Shap calendar of world religions festivals, right? And this became the definitive calendar for world religions festivals. And over the course of time, I learned more about calendars and uh, now can spin off pretty easily about 15 or 17 different calendars. And I know how they work, right? So if I were to ask the, the average Jew, um, when is Pesach going to be in two years time? It, it, most Jews would be a bit stuck by that. If I were to ask the average Christian, when's Easter going to be in two years' time? They also wouldn't really know how that works. Um, and, uh, and, and the same is true of just about every religious community. You know, the calendar is the calendar they're given, and if they're not given it, then they don't know how, what it is, right? Um, and, of course, we are all trapped, because it's one of the things you'll hear me say repeatedly, probably, on this course of lectures, um, is that we, most of us, most Jews like us, have Jewish hearts, but we have non-Jewish heads, right? Our heads are trained non-Jewishly. At the minute we start thinking, 
we can't get the Jewish stuff going. We get to feel the Jewish stuff. And then we think about it. We haven't got enough information. We haven't got enough knowledge. We're not tuned in enough Jewishly to think Jewishly. So, for example, we all know about Pesach, but the minute we think calendars, we think January to December. We think 2011. You know, if I were to ask you today, you know, what's the date? What month are we in? Right? You'd all know it's January. If I say, no, no, Jewish month, right? Probably, I mean, some of you may know it's Tevet, right? But some of you may not. And even if you do kind of technically think about that, it's not obvious immediately. I mean, you know that January is followed by February. That's easy. But Tevet's followed by, mm, right? So some know, but most don't, right? And exactly what date is it today? Right? You've all got systems for, you know, figuring out what date it is. But which date of Tevet? We look at the moon, but do we? Right? Yesterday I was in a, a home, a lovely home that was hosting me, and in the evening I wanted a Dove and Marif, and I said, uh, which way is Jerusalem? So I know which way to face. Right? I mean, it doesn't matter that much because the world is round and it'll eventually hit it, right? But, you know, but it's a cute idea. So I said, which way is Jerusalem? And they go, oh, uh, and I said, well, which way does the sun rise? They go, oh, um, isn't that strange? Isn't that strange? So you're right, technically we look at the moon, but we don't, right? We don't even notice. I mean, most people in, in, in Orange County, I guess, from one month to the next, unless they particularly notice the full moon one day, they wouldn't know that it was or it wasn't or a new moon or whatever, right? So to be tuned into different calendars is actually quite a difficult thing. Um, so I got to making this, this calendar, um, and uh, it, it became, it was published every, every year in Britain, and there are now foreign language versions of it, and about uh, 20,000 copies are produced every, every year, uh, and uh, distributed to schools and law courts and hospitals and uh, some industries and so on and so forth, so people know what to anticipate. Um, just a, a little um, anecdote, and then I'll get into the, the heart of the topic. Um, when I moved up to Liverpool, um, the one festival I was having real difficulty pinning down, and, and I was getting pretty good at this thing by now. I'd been doing it for a good few years. But the one festival I was having real difficulty pinning down was Chinese New Year. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Chinese New Year is not fixed until the new moon is seen somewhere, and there's some dispute about where exactly, but until the new moon is seen on the spring equinox of the year preceding, right? Spring equinox that, um, around 21st of March, that, that, that new moon, when that new moon is seen, that fixes the Chinese year thereafter, okay? And it's the same system, right? There are three different ways of running a calendar right, at the moment, as far as I know, right? One is solar. That's the Gregorian year, the January to February year, 365 and a quarter days, solar calendar, all right? That's easy, we're all familiar with that. The second one is the Jewish one, which is called loony solar. It's, that doesn't mean loony, right? It's, it's moon-sun interaction. So what we have is we have a, a, a series of months which are defined by the moon, Right, the new moon and, the, and so on, which is 29 and a half days long, that cycle. Right? But if you have 12 months of that, you end up with about 353 days or so, 354 days, which means that you're running short of the 
solar calendar, right? 354 days means, say, somehow you've lost 11 or 12 days a year, right? So how do we solve the problem? You're probably familiar with this in the Jewish calendar. Every so often, you slip in an extra month and it brings things back into line. So if you're losing about 11 or 12 days a year, then you need to slip in an extra month every two or three years. It's not like every four years, that's easy, right? Every two or three years. Now, what you may not know is the vast majority of the calendars in the world work like the Jewish one, right? Although the world at large, you know, not least as a result of Google and uh, whatnot and Microsoft, has adopted the Gregorian calendar. The cultural calendars of the year, the Hindu calendar, the Buddhist calendar, the Chinese calendar, the Jewish calendar, they all work by this lunisolar model. And they all interpose a, a, a month from time to time. The Chinese New Year interposes a month immediately before New Year. All right? So it's really difficult to know when Chinese New Year is going to be until you've got the almanacs from, the, from China from the previous year, which says this year's got to be a leap year. We're going to add an extra month at the end. Otherwise, you can't tell. I don't want to get overcomplicated here. I hope you're still keeping up, right? But if last year, we get a bit Talmudic about China, if last year was a leap year, then you know this year is not going to be a leap year because you never have two in a row. If the last two years were not leap years, then you know next year must be a leap year because you never have more than three years without a leap year. But if last year wasn't a leap year, is this year a leap year? Right? And I got it, I guessed, and I tried to calculate, and I put it side by side with the Jewish calendar, and I looked at other calendars and so on. And I tried to guess, and about once every three times, I got it wrong. Right? So when I moved up to Liverpool, where there's a large Chinese community, I decided I would befriend the Chinese community, find out how they found out, and get to their sources, and maybe that would make it easier for me to, because the publication dates were all wrong for me, right? So I got up to China, uh, got up to Liverpool, rather, uh, and uh, contacted the Pagoda Center and said to them, I'm trying to find out the date of Chinese New Year for whatever year it was, 1982 or something. Um, can you tell me what it is? They said, yes, we'll put you through to our reference department. I told the reference department what I wanted. They said, yes, we'll go and look it up. They came back to me and they said, sorry, the information hasn't come through yet. So I said, that's my problem too. Can you give me your source so that I can get to the source? They went away. They said, yes, we'll look it up. They came back and they said, yes, it's someone called Clive Lawton from the <laughs> Shap calendar. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... so uh, so I am. You are in the presence of one of the world's leading calendrical specialists. Okay. Um, so uh, just what I said before about calendars and how they work, um, there is only one calendar that I know of of any significance. I mean, presumably there are small local tribal communities that have their own calendars that I don't know about. But only one calendar that kind of reverberates globally that I know of that is purely lunar. Right? And that's the Muslim calendar. Right? The Muslim calendar is purely lunar. That means that the Muslims have 12 lunar months uh, of 29 and a half days, uh, which means to say that the, the, the Muslim year is about 353, 354 days long. Right? Um, that explains why 
The Muslims count their years from 622 CE. That's the year that Muhammad uh, made the journey from Mecca to Medina. It depends if you're talking to non-Muslims, they'll call it the flight. Uh, if you call it talking to Muslims, they'll call it the migration. Right? So one has more dignity than the other. Right? One way or another, anyway, it was the movement from Mecca to Medina in 622. So if you just do your sums, it's very easy, isn't it? Here we are in the year 2011, uh, 2012, aren't we? 2012, right? Here we are in 2012, 622. You just add it all up, and clearly Muslims must be in the year 1390, right? Because it's 1390 years since... Muhammad made the journey, right, 622, something like that. Easy. But they're not. They're in the year 1428. Why? Because their years are shorter. So they've crammed in more years than we have. So they're catching up. <laughs> right? It, but it does mean this, that when you next come to one of those birthdays you weren't looking forward to, you know, there you are, 40, 50, 60, 80, 90, 120, whatever it is, you were not looking forward to, and you look in the mirror and you go, oh dear, look, brighten up and say, at least I'm not Muslim, otherwise I'd be older. <laughs> right? So, um, what does this tell us? What does the fact that the, the Muslim calendar is lunar tell us about Muslims? It tells us that Muslims are indifferent to place. Now, this is very significant, right? Because the Muslim calendar, obviously, doesn't care about seasons. Seasons are an agricultural preoccupation, right? Seasons are concerned about where you are and how the land works. But of course, not least because Islam was originally a desert um, uh, religion, but also because Islam really aspires and succeeds in, in global application. That is, it works in any place. It's indifferent to place, right? It means to say that the uh, Muslim calendar doesn't care whether it's summer, winter, autumn, anything. So Ramadan, the month of fasting, can sometimes fall in the summer, sometimes fall in the winter, sometimes... You know, it, it, it doesn't matter. Whereas, as you know, for Jews, Pesach must fall in springtime. That's why we interpose our extra month from time to time to get Pesach back in line. It would be appalling for Jews to have Pesach not fall in springtime. But notice this. For Jews, Pesach must fall in springtime in Israel, right? So uh, if you're in Australia, for example, Pesach is, is in autumn time. But it doesn't matter. Because while Islam is indifferent to place, Jews are indifferent to geography. That is, we don't care where we are, somehow we're still in Israel, right? So both in terms of geography and in terms of history, Jews are always there and now. Now, let me explain the now. The Jewish calendar takes us through the entire Jewish history every year. Every year, we live the, the key experiences of the Jewish people. We live them. We don't just commemorate them. Right? We're very familiar with the Western mode of commemorating things. Right? We have a memorial day, or a, and people are not too sure what to do, but they, they stand about and salute the flag or, or you know, whatever it is they're supposed to do. I don't know. Right? But in, in the Jewish mode, we don't commemorate events, we relive them. 
Right? The most famous example, of course, being Pesach, when we're told in the, in the Haggadah that uh, it, it, you should um, tell your child it's because of what God did for me when I came out from Egypt, because had he not redeemed our ancestors, we would still be slaves. So we must live the exodus. We must eat the bitter herbs. We must eat the matzah. We must feel the liberation of Pesach. So similarly, we must sit in the sukkah and feel the, the vulnerability of the space. Right? And we must um, hear the, the news coming from Shushan at, at Purim time and, 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 and celebrate and, and, and suffer the details as we read the newspaper of Megillat Esther. Right? We, we must um, sit and mourn the destruction of the temple as if now, not as if some ancient thing. Right? All, all of the Jewish calendar is about wrapping up the entire body of Jewish history and cramming it into our current year. Right? So at one level, we don't care about the fact that we're here in this year because we're actually in every year of Jewish experience, every year. Right? Uh, at the same time, we don't care about where we happen to be because in one way, we're always in the land of Israel. Now, there are other religions which also have a lunisolar calendar. Um, I mentioned, of course, the, the other big one uh, on the planet. Because we live in the Western world, and uh, not least because of the politics of the modern world, we tend to think of Christianity and Islam as the kind of two big ones. Right? And of course, numerically, they are. Um, there, there's roughly two billion Christians in the world, about a million Catholics, and about a million of the rest, right? Protestant and Orthodox, every kind of stripe and denomination you can think of. And there's about 1.2 million, billion Muslims, 1.2 billion Muslims, right? About a billion of that 1.2 are Sunni, and about 0.2 are, 200 million are um, Shia, okay? So we think of those as the two big ones, and we forget very often that the third big religion of the world is, of course, Hinduism. Hinduism probably has nearly a billion adherents, but, of course, most of them are in India. So we don't think of it so much as a global religion, but in terms of the way in which religions work in the world, Hinduism is the sister religion of Judaism. And because what you have in the world is two pulsing fountains of spirituality. One based in Israel, one based in India, right? And they pulse and they pulse and they pulse out new religions from these fountainheads of Judaism and Hinduism. And there are two modes of thinking. There's the Hindu mode and the Jewish mode. In essence, there's the monotheistic mode and the pantheistic, polytheistic, uh, uh, non-theistic mode. Right? And these two sources continue to pulse out new religions. Out the top of the fountain emerge new versions, whether out of the, the Jewish stream comes Scientology and Mormonism and all those things which still are informed by this stream. And out of the top of this one comes uh, Hare Krishna and new modes of new age religious forms out of this stream. 
I don't want to say anything about the significance of history, but the fact that these are two countries beginning with I in challenge to two countries beginning with P, which were both partitioned in the 1940s, and I don't know, that's just kind of a cute little coincidence. But nevertheless, we've got these two different things. And both religions, both religions are rooted in the loony solar calendar, both Judaism and Hinduism. All right? Hindus have a loony solar calendar because they're smart enough to know that the solar year, you know, the world goes around the sun in 365 days and a quarter. All right? They're smart enough to know that. But they're also smart enough to know that the agricultural cycle is one that ordinary people have to be able to observe by looking at the moon. Right? Because you should remember that the, the Gregorian calendar we have, it's called Gregorian because it's named after Pope Gregory, right? um, the Gregorian calendar we have is based on 12 months that have no basis except mathematics. 365 days, let's divide it into 12 pieces. Now this is based on the original Egyptian calendar. The ancient Egyptian calendar had 12 months of 30 days. Now, again, you don't have to be very good at maths to realise that that leaves five days spare. What do you do with your five spare days? Orgy. Right? For five days in ancient Egypt, people just got drunk and I don't know what else they did. Right? But for five days, that's what happened. And when you wake up at the end of the five days and you can't remember what happened, that's fine, because those days don't exist. Right? And so it's a kind of cute calendar, but it didn't really catch on. As you know, what caught on was the kind of calendar we have now, which is a very simple, straightforward calendar, the old Roman calendar, which was alternating months of 31 days and 30 days. 31, 30, 31, 30, 31, 30. Very simple, right? That's very straightforward. So January, of course, has 31 days. And as you all know, February has 30 days and March has 31 and April, no. Exactly. Why not? Because Julius Caesar, you have to remember, the calendar that we use is a calendar dedicated. We think of it as the normal calendar, the obvious calendar, the natural calendar. And despite ourselves, our non-Jewish heads tell us that the Jewish calendar is a bit quirky, a bit odd. Do we not say that Rosh Hashanah moves around? Right? But it never occurs to us to say, no, Rosh Hashanah stays still. Rosh Hashanah is always the first of Tishri. It's Christmas that moves around. Because <laughs> you never know which day to Kislev Christmas is going to be. And we don't say that because our heads don't do it. Right? So you need to know the Gregorian calendar is dedicated to the ego of dead Roman emperors. Right? Julius Caesar was the guy who noticed that in the absence of the leap year, Right, Julius Caesar introduced the leap year model. They used to have a simple, straightforward 31, 30, 31, 30, until you come to November, December, which are both 30 days in order to make the 365, not 366. Right? But the result of this is they didn't have a leap year, so they weren't introducing an extra day every so often. So as a result, the spring equinox, which is supposed to be on March the 21st, started to slide because they were missing a day every four years. They should have had an extra day, and they didn't have it. All right? So Julius Caesar introduced the leap year. All right? Every four years, there should be an extra day. All right? And this is what became known as the Julian calendar. 
But Julius Caesar wanted to mark this change of the calendar. By the way, there were riots in Rome because they had to skip a few days and everybody thought they were going to die 10 days earlier as a result, you know, and all that sort of thing. Because if you've ever done horoscopes, you'll know that your horoscope could tell you the day you're going to die. So if you're going to die on the 10th of September and the 10th of September has been brought forward by 15 days, that's a catastrophe, isn't that right? So, so um, what happened was Julius Caesar wanted to commemorate his impact on the calendar. So what did he do? He took a month off the end of the year, right? Took a month off the end of the year and he put it into the summer and named it after himself. He wanted a summer month named after himself, right? That summer month is named after him, Julius, July. But he wanted a big month. He didn't want 30 days. And remember, the last two months are 30 days, right? So he wanted a 31-day month for him. So he takes the last, day, last month away, which is 30 days, sticks it in the middle of the month, names it after himself, and then he's got to find an extra day from somewhere. So this is fine, because he's decided that February is going to be the leap year month. So February would sometimes be 30 days and sometimes be 31 days. Well, why not take a day from February and it can sometimes be 29 days and sometimes be 30 days. So he takes a day from February and makes February 29 days usually. And that way July is 31 days. Good. Until along comes his successor, Octavian, who becomes known as Augustus Caesar. You can see it coming, can't you? <laughs> right? Augustus is determined not to be outdone by his uh, adoptive father, Julius. And so he takes another month off the end of the year, right? It's also a 30-day month. He wants a month named after him. He wants it to be a big month. So he puts it in the middle of the year, names it after himself, August, Augustus, right? And because nobody seemed to, you know, there were no riots in the streets when Julius took a day off February, because everybody wants February to finish earlier anyway, right? So he took another day from February. And February then became 28 days. And, and that way, you got two extra long months in the middle of the year, August, uh, July and August. And that's why we all, all children have to do this 30 days, that's September, April, because of these two dead Romans. It also explains why the last five months of the year, four months of the year, are stupidly called September, October, November, December. Because if you think about it, if you know any Latin or any French or Span uh, Latinate languages, you'll know that sept, oct, nov, and dec is seven, eight, nine, and ten. So why are they called seven, eight, nine, and ten when actually they're nine, ten, eleven, and twelve? Because they've been displaced by these two months of July and August that shoved them forwards. So, folks, every calendar tells us something of the history or the outlook of a people, right? When you look at the Jewish calendar, you can see its cycles. Now, in the Jewish calendar, we have, I, I'm doing a, a, a series on um, Thursday evenings, Thursday evenings, on the calendar, on the festivals, right? And you're welcome to come. Oh, maybe you're not welcome to come. It's sold out, right? I don't know. Anyway, you're still welcome to come. Um, and, and one of the things we notice in the cycle of the Jewish calendar is that there are different segments of festivals and they work in different ways. So we've got the, the high holy days, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which are a little unit of festivals, 
right? which the rabbis put together, really. They didn't belong together, but they got put together. And then you've got the cycle of the three pilgrim festivals, which are essentially agricultural festivals. They're harvest festivals, all three of them. Pesach is the uh, barley harvest. Shavuot is the grain harvest. And Sukkot is the finishing of the harvest. And then also on those three festivals is the central myth account of the Jewish people, the central myth of the Jewish people. And I'm using the word myth here in its proper meaning, not in the sense that we often use it, meaning, eh, it's just a myth, it's just rubbish, take no notice. I'm using it in its proper meaning. That is, a myth is a story which carries more truth than simple fact. Okay? And you don't have to worry about the factuality of the story, it's the truth of the story that makes a myth important. Right? The central myth of the Jewish people is the exodus from Egypt. Right? And so these three festivals carry the three components of the central myth of the Exodus from Egypt. Pesach, the Exodus, Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, Sukkot, the wandering in the wilderness. That tells that story. Right? And that sequence takes us through the live part of the year. Pesach starts the spring. Shavuot puts us in the summer. Sukkot finishes the agricultural cycle. Then we all go to sleep till Pesach again. Right? And then you have, interspersed through the year, a series of fasts and festivals which wrap up the rest of Jewish history. Right? Whether it's Lag Ba'omer, whether it's um, uh, Purim, whether it's Hanukkah, whether it's uh, the, the fasts of uh, the 10th of Tevet that just went by, or, or Tisha B'Av, or Tzom Gedalia, or whatever, right? these wrap up the rest of Jewish history. What is very exciting for the Jewish people is that we have been alive in a time when the Jewish calendar has been reactivated, right? For 2,000 years or so, since Purim, nobody, or Hanukkah rather, nobody thought that you could add any more dates to the calendar because the, the center of the Jews had kind of got lost. We couldn't get ourselves together enough to determine any new date. Purim was the last historical event to be marked in the calendar. And now in our lifetime, there are several new dates jostling their way onto the Jewish calendar. Some of which are still disputed, some of which are, may not bite and last for long, time will tell. But new dates being pushed into the calendar. They are, of course, relating, of course, Yom HaShoah. Right? Not clear whether that will in fact survive, I think, another generation or two. I think it could easily go, because it doesn't have any proper Jewish forms. Nobody knows what to do with it, really. Right? Uh, and Israeli-related dates, like Yom Ha'atzmaut, which will probably bite and stick, I think. Um, uh, Yom HaZikaron, the Israeli Memorial Day, prior to um, Yom Ha'atzmaut. I'm not sure if that will become a, an international event, really. I think it probably won't. Um, and Yom Yerushalayim which is not largely reflected except in certain segments of the Jewish world outside of Israel, and even in Israel doesn't necessarily reverberate through all of the um, Israeli population. But nevertheless, what we've been witness to in our lifetime is this reactivating of the Jewish calendar to incorporate in it events of significance in Jewish history. That's a very exciting thing to be witness to. Our parents, grandparents, great, 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 great grandparents didn't see this, right? 
So that's a remarkable moment for the Jewish people. Now, there are, of course, other calendars around. Um, by the way, if you look at the Hindu calendar, as I said, it's lunisolar, not surprisingly, because Hindus, like Jews, are rooted in a place. Only Jews and Hindus of all the world religions think that a single place is significant just because it's there. Right? Every other religion has pilgrim sites, places you should go to. So you all famously know the Muslim Hajj, right? Ideally, in a lifetime, a Muslim should go on pilgrimage to Mecca and to Medina and so on, right? Um, or, or, or Sikhs who would uh, love to be able to go to Amritsa, the central major golden uh, Gurdwara that they have there. Um, <laughs> Buddhists, if you can get to the Bodhi tree or to some other shrine, that would be very nice. Christians have all kinds of pilgrim sites to go to, right? But Jews and Hindus are not interested in pilgrim sites alone. They're just interested in chunks of real estate, right? The land of Israel is interesting to Jews because it's the land of Israel. Not because of anything that happened there. I mean, interesting things happened there. But the most interesting thing to the Jews didn't happen in the land of Israel, right? Sinai is outside. The Exodus is outside. Sukkot finishes before we arrive. The Torah finishes before we arrive, right? But the land of Israel is just special for Jews. Christians call it the Holy Land, but why do they call it the Holy Land? Because it's where Jesus walked. Where Jesus walked becomes interesting to Christians. Where Jesus didn't walk is kind of no interest at all. But for Jews, it doesn't matter. Netanya becomes holy for Jews, just because it's the land. And the same is true for Hindus. For Hindus... India is just special. If you can get yourself cremated on the banks of the river Ganges, that's got to be better than any place else. Just pure real estate. Why? Because the Hindus and the Jews are the only two world religions that despite their pulsating power around the world, have remained essentially tribal. Neither Hindus nor Jews really understand the idea of conversion. We have converts. There are people who become Hindus, not so many, but they come in through some of the newer strands, you know, through Hare Krishna or something like that. But Hindus don't really understand, how can you become a Hindu? You're either a Hindu, you're not a Hindu, right? And Jews certainly have learnt the process of conversion, and quite possibly many of you are Jews by choice, I don't know, right? So we've certainly learnt the process of conversion, but nevertheless, you still come up against, don't you? Jews who go... You want to be a Jew? Why, why would you do that? Right? How does that work? Right? Because there is this tribal instinct that a Jew is somebody of the Jewish family. How do you get to be a Jew? You pop out of a Jewish womb. I don't know. There's nothing to do with what you believe. or Just what you are. Right? And that tribalness connects to the land model. Buddhist Sikhs, Christians, Muslims, whatever. They just don't have it. All of those are evangelical religions. All of those make special effort to go out and grab folk. Why? Because they've got to carve out a market share. Right? Jews and Hindus don't play it that way. They just don't. They go, well, we are who we are, aren't we? Okay, if people want to join, fair enough. We don't have to go out and grab people. How does that work? Right? And you see this in the calendar, the rootedness of the Hindu and the Jewish calendar. So what distinguishes Hindus and Jews? I mean, I said there are two different systems. Well, one of the first things that distinguishes us is that Hindus don't have a week. 
Right. Again, we take for granted, don't we, the seven-day week. Everybody knows the seven-day week. Well, not in India, they don't. Well, they do now. Well, not in the countryside, they don't. Well, I, probably they do because they need to watch TV schedules, right? <laughs> but otherwise, you know, there's, there's no week in Hinduism. The, the, the month, the 29-day month, is divided into uh, two cycles, new moon to full moon, full moon to old moon, 14, 15 days long. Some Hindus start the month with the new moon. Some Hindus start the month with the full moon. They don't care. Doesn't matter. They're staying. They're not going anywhere. Right? The seven-day week, it's not a Jewish invention. It uh, predates Judaism, probably. The Babylonians had a seven-day week, Mesopotamians and Sumerians. But Jews made the seven-day week the pivot around our social structure. Now, seven-day week makes no sense whatsoever. Nothing divides up into, nothing multiplies up from a seven-day week. It's not, a, it's not a proper division of a month. It's not a proper division of a year. The seven-day week is utterly, determinedly non-naturalistic. This is not a nature week. Whereas Hinduism is a nature cycle. Hinduism does it by the moon. You see, the moon is this, it's that, that's how we divide time up. Because Hinduism is very happy to be subject to the cycles of the sky. But that's not the way Jews do it. Jews go, no, 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 no. Our time is determined by God. We will determine time according to the way God created the world, seven-day week. It's a radically different understanding of how time is to be understood. But then Jews done something even more remarkable. I don't know what happens in different um, synagogues and, and stripes of synagogue, but in my kind of shul, which is, a, I suppose, modern Orthodox, not as modern as you'd like, but nevertheless, modern Orthodox shul, um, every, every month before the beginning of Rosh, uh, Rosh Chodesh, before the new month, an announcement is made in shul on Shabbat. Do you have this in different shuls? Yes, okay. So announcement is made that on Tuesday or whatever, the new month is going to start. Right. Um, however, in my shul, and possibly in yours too, uh, it is announced before the formal liturgical announcement, somebody says, the molad, right, which is the moment of the turning of the moon from the old moon into the new moon, right, the molad, that moment, is, is a specific time. Right? As you can imagine, you may not be able to see it because it might be daytime or something, but there is a specific time, that molad, that turning. So somebody will announce something like, sometimes, the molad is on Tuesday at 6.53 and 15 chalakim. That's a Talmudic second. Right? They'll say something like that. The molad is on Tuesday at 6.53. Rosh Chodesh is on Thursday. How can that be? How can the molad, the time of the turning of the new moon, be on Tuesday and yet Rosh Chodesh is on Thursday? Because the Jews have reserved to themselves the right to decide when Rosh Chodesh is going to be. Now, if you want chutzpah, guys, this is it. Right? The rabbis point out that in the Torah it says, you shall declare for yourselves the new moon. And they go, ah! For yourselves, Lanu, for yourselves, you will decide when the new moon is going to be. So although we go by the new moon cycle, we are not slavishly driven by what's happening in the sky. Why? Have you ever noticed 
that Yom Kippur is never on a Friday or a Sunday. It would just be too inconvenient to be before or after Shabbat. So we fiddle the calendar. We move days around. We make months longer, shorter. We move it about. And there's a couple of other reasons why we make those differences. The result being that not only do we shift in extra months every so often to bring it back into line with the spring, we shift in extra days and take days out. There are six different lengths of a Jewish year. The Jewish year is a highly sophisticated, calibrated thing. Right? And, and that tells us that unlike the Hindu model, which is, of course, highly respectful and reflective of the way in which nature works. That's the way in which Hinduism sees the world. Judaism says, yes, 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 nature, very interesting. But we reserve to ourselves the right to make this work because God gave us the power to make that decision. Guys, this is a huge topic and I only have time to introduce it briefly. I'm just going to finish briefly with my favourite little calendar of all. Okay, and that's the Baha'i calendar. I don't know if you've come across Baha'is. They're generally a very happy bunch of people. Great, great crowd. You very rarely meet a Baha'i who looks miserable. It's lovely, right? But the Baha'is have a calendar. 19 months of 19 days. Now, you know that this means that Baha'i is a new religion and somebody worked this out on the back of an envelope, right? 19 months, somebody sat down and go, okay, we're gonna have a new religion, guys. We're gonna have a new calendar. What shall we do? Everybody's tried everything else. Oh, I know, this is a good one. 19 months and 19 days, right? Now, that means, so you don't have to do 30 days past September, you could do 19 months, easy, right? Got it. Except that, again, those of you good at maths will have worked out that 19 times 19 is 361. And everybody knows that in the solar calendar, it's 365 days. And Baha'is are smart enough to know that they better keep in line with the Gregorian calendar, because that's the way the rest of the world's head works now. So what do you do with the spare four days left? You can't do the Egyptian orgy. That's out for Baha'is, right? So what do you do with the spare four days at the end of the year? Hmm? That's all right, smart Alec might be right. You never know. This is so bizarre that smart Alec sometimes <laughs> might work. I said count their money. Count their money. Well, you're not far off. <laughs> National conference. National conference. <laughs> national conference. 19 months and 90 days followed by four days of national conference. Fine, good. Except every four years, you've got five spare days. What do you do with five spare days? International conference. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we have time for questions, folks. Uh, just briefly, I know people want to get away, but if there's any burning question, yes. Do you have any of those calendars that you The SHAP calendar? Um, uh, no, but it's subscribable to on on the thingy, you know, uh, SHAP, S-H-A-P, the SHAP calendar. Okay. Yeah. Now the other thing is, if you if Julius and Augustus took two from the end, and nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So what was Julia, what was it before? Oh, the last two, the last two months, I don't remember the names. I think they were presumably 11 and 12, but, but I, don't, I don't know. That's, it may be recorded somewhere, but I don't know it. Um, yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, when I was a student at high school in Tel Aviv, 
between Purim and Pesach. That's when we learn to calculate the, Hebrew, the Jewish calendar. So, and so we learned about uh, the rules of Atbash, how to intercalate, how uh, is a year chasera or mlea, and, and, and the rest of the thing. So if you get them ever in trouble, call me. Ah. <laughs> you know, he just mentioned something, Atbash, yes? Atbash gardak hatzvab, yes. Okay, this is a little code which used to be written in the back. You know, people would make a note to themselves um, because it's all very well knowing the date of things, but the date is not often as useful as the day, right? Yeah, 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 so Pesach is on Nisan the 15th. Yeah, 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 that happens to be April the 5th. But what I really need to know is, is it going to be Wednesday or Monday or something, right? So Atbashgardak Hatzvap was a, a code um, which, uh, which people would make a note of, um, and it worked from Pesach. So the, what you had to do is you had to know when was the first day of Pesach. So let's assume the first day of Pesach is Monday. Okay? So, At is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet put together. An Aleph and a Taf. Right? The Taf stands for Tisha B'Av. So you know that if the first day of Pesach is a Monday, Tisha B'Av will be a Monday. Right? Bash, the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the penultimate letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Shin. Yes? So the second day of Pesach in this model is a Tuesday. The Shin stands for Shavuot. So Shavuot will be on a Tuesday. All right? Gar, Gimel, the third day of Pesach. Resh stands for Rosh Hashanah. The third day of Pesach is a Wednesday this year. Rosh Hashanah will be on a Wednesday. And so on through to the last one, Vap, the sixth day of Pesach and the Pei. Now, this is a bit of a cheat, because the pay doesn't refer to next Purim, it refers to last Purim. Okay? So it's a bit of a cheat, but nevertheless, it's quite good. But they never went any further. Right? It was always... Right? But they never went on to the seventh letter. Now, what was the seventh letter? The seventh letter, going backwards from the back of the alphabet, is an ayin. Now, what is a festival beginning with Ayin? You could say Shemini Atzeret. You could say, I suppose, Atzeret. But, but really, that starts with a Shin, Shemini. And anyway, we already know it because it's the same day as Sukkot. We've already got a system for that. So they didn't have an Ayin festival back in the Middle Ages when they worked this all out. So they never went to the seventh day of Pesach to work it out. But guys, we now have an Ayin festival. Yom HaTzma'ut. And sure enough, Yom HaTzma'ut is on the same day of the week as the seventh day of Pesach. So had you asked those guys back there in 1500, imagine there was an Independence Day. What day of the week would it fall? They would have been able to tell you. Thank you.